Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. both for joining me. For those who can't see, I am Justine Youssef. I'm here on behalf of NAVA. I work with the organisation as the Professional Practice Coordinator and I'm joined by Helen Grace and Dylan Batty today over a Zoom call for this podcast. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Well, I was a member of the union back, uh, the Art Workers Union, I should say, back in the day uh, at the start of it. It began in 1979. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but simply about me. I was not a leading member of the organisation, so I'm not sort of claiming that. But what I did do 20 years ago was to compile a kind of the first attempt at a history of it. So I have a reasonable sense of the, the flow and the achievements and, and so on. So we can uh, work around that. But I've worked as an artist and an academic and too many things, as so many people do. So my name is Dylan Batty. I am one of the founding members of the Australian Arts Workers Alliance. I am an artist and an art installer. And the Arts Workers Alliance uh, started uh, about two years ago in reference to some research I was doing about the hierarchies of labor in art galleries and art institutions. And from then on, we started meeting once a month to discuss things and discuss priorities. And yeah, that's awesome. sort of where we are today. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. So yeah, so I reached out to you, Dylan, because this month at NAVA, we're focusing on, um, I guess, our advocacy priorities surrounding art workers and arts workers, right? Particularly mm. around this current climate that we're all in. After a couple of initial conversations, we thought it would be super interesting to bring someone on board from a historical union, which is why we reached out to you, Helen. So we're really grateful and super lucky to have you and your perspective in, in this chat right now. Helen, would you be able to introduce the Arts Workers Union and speak sure. a little bit? Sure, yes, yes. Well, well, the union started in the late uh, 70s, in fact, in 79, around the Biennale of Sydney that year. And so uh, there were a whole lot of people at that point who'd also come back from living overseas for, for one thing, but then there were other artists who had been around here, you know, forever who hadn't, in fact, gone overseas. And, and so... Uh, around the time of the Biennale, there was this kind of a series of meetings that were informal and chaotic and but very <laughs> energetic at the time, mm. you know. And in fact, in those early years, the Art Workers Union was really the only game in town. The the meetings were, you know, like there was dissatisfaction with the the fact that there weren't there weren't enough Australian artists in the Biennale. That was a consideration. So there was this kind of interest in the, in the future of Australian artists, Australian art, uh, and that was a really important concern. So what happened was really the formation of, in fact, a cultural movement in, in so many ways because the meetings were really energetic. And um, I, 
I will share with you later or after this meeting a series of images that I just put together. But there were all of these kind of, uh, you know, really long meetings that were full of energy and passion and they were boisterous and there was arguments and there were all of these meetings and these meetings were like, you know, performance events in many ways in terms of the number of people who were engaged in them. And also there were kind of fundraising dances and poster making around that and around the 19, um, so between like 1979 was the beginning and then by 1982, by the time of that Biennale, there was a lot more organisation in place and so they proposed a contract to, um, to go to the, you know, for Australian artists or all artists involved in, in the Biennale. That didn't, uh, they were not successful in negotiating a contract, though they did have a lovely demonstration at the Biennale opening and there are some really good images of that as well. And But they were successful in negotiating a contract for the 1984 Biennale. And I'm not sure if that's kind of still in play because I've never been in the Biennale, so I, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is we are all of us uh, who have works in public galleries and so on now aware that, that we there are loan agreements, there is some formal arrangement, there may be a, a kind of artist fee and so on, all of those things. None of that existed before this period. And so what happens is that it's a very active group, really, and it continues in uh, a whole lot of um, advocacy and a whole lot of uh, campaigns around health and safety, around affirmative action, around copyright. It joins, the union joins the uh, Copyright Council in 1981, for example, and it, it continues in producing a whole series of um, publications on all of those areas that I've mentioned, as well as um, organising uh, forums, uh, really important, very crowded, uh, very busy forums of international people who are here who have been brought to the country, for example, who are relevant to the argument, to the sort of political debate about artists. Um, and, and in some ways, um, Bill and you've mentioned that group you're involved with now is is about the organising of uh, installers and handlers, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's, a, I think, at that time there perhaps wasn't so much a separation. There's, the art world has become so much more stratified since mm. then. Those days, you know, you did all your own installing. You did, you know, like yeah. it was not. It was that kind of thing. So uh, I think a lot of that's changed. I think that the professionalisation that's happened in the last, well, it's, you know, 40 years now, that, that's made a big difference. And and the union was kind of like all about breaking down those kinds of hierarchies. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess it's something that we can be, we can talk about, that so many mm. more of those hierarchies uh, have been re-established in the art world so that it, it's now very hierarchical, stratified, um, organ, uh, you know, structure. At that time, the unions, uh, or, or rather the art workers, and they call themselves art workers rather than artists, and that's, you know, we can talk about that, and we're, there was a whole lot of talk, and a whole lot of talk <laughs> about the name of the union, because a lot of people thought that it was kind of a misnomer to say art workers, because art workers were not like, you know, employees of anyone, sort of. 
So there was all of that debate about that kind of legal status and so on, which is why I think that the concept of the union became a little bit of a problem for for a lot of people. And there were mm. huge debates and, and all the documentary record of this exists. So it's possible to go back and look at it closely. Now a new generation can reconsider. But a number of really important, you know, things happened. For example, I would say that just the, the setting down of the uh, of a whole lot of principles around health and safety, around affirmative action, around copyright, around ethics, um, and and so on. All of those things, the beginnings of those things, were all established by the Art Workers Union, and then it itself was formally registered as a union, but it eventually then in 1989, in fact, and so then it kind of finally in 1994 amalgamated with the uh, with MEAA. Media, mm. uh, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, with, with which there, there, there's some affinity. And so the thing is that the advantage of being in a union is that you have a legal basis for setting standards and so on or for setting, like, mm. levels of remuneration. There is all we have now is just, you know, guidelines, advice. There's no legal requirement for anyone to do anything. By having a union, it was argued that you could get to that point. And the fact of the matter is we do have, uh, because of that amalgamation structurally, uh, a kind of, you can say perhaps, and it's, it should be investigated, uh, a kind of shelf structure within MEAA that could be reactivated if there was enough new energy to, like, focus in that. Because mm. it's so exhausting and always part-time and, and, uh, and the point of that you know, decade uh, of work, 15 years of work, was to try to get it to a state where you you could, uh, where it could be a, a bit more professionalised. And Thank you so much for that detail. It'd be really interesting to talk about this shelf structure that MEAA have already. Um, mm. We can do that a little later on. Um, Helen, I loved hearing about the beginnings of the union, how it was really chaotic and informal and super messy. That is definitely something I resonate with as... Um, I guess, a worker at an artist-run initiative, and I'm sure that might be how you feel about AAWA Dylan as well. Before we kind of bridge the conversation that um, you've just opened up, Helen, can you give us a bit of a picture of the landscape um, of the art sector at the beginnings of the Arts Workers Union? Um, so you mentioned that there were no regulations around health and safety, no conversations around wages and copyright. Um, can you give us a bit more of a, of a picture of the art sector's landscape at the time? Well, I, th I think that there were relatively few, say, art magazines. There, was, uh, there, there were relatively few uh, artist-run initiatives. There was a relatively small number of galleries. Um, the, the museums themselves uh, or the main galleries, state galleries and museums, uh, were just kind of moving towards contemporary art. Uh, it was not you know, an Australian contemporary art, because in a sense that is a, a kind of post-war phenomenon in some sense of, of what it became. So there was a lot of influence, of course, from uh, um, the US, from New York, from Europe, and but, this, but the landscape here was, was fairly, uh, I don't know whether we should say drought-stricken perhaps. There's a tendency to say that Australia is a cultural desert, and I think that that's really problematic. And in a certain sense, that was one of the ideas that was really 
consider. The reality of the matter is that there were organisations like the Contemporary Art Society, which had been active for a really long time. They had a very important newsletter called the Contemporary Art Society newsletter, and uh, there are all sorts of. Um, uh, uh, this this is kind of like I'm looking at the the sort of particular radicalization of the Contemporary Art Society in the early 70s when a whole lot of, at that time, young, very young uh, contemporary artists moved into it and began to, you know, campaign uh, a bit more for a, a broader diversity of practice. They were concerned too with, I suppose, the, you know, by the time that the Artworkers' Union started to get come into play, um, there had been really... Um, a whole lot of, and you know, there's lots of books have been written on this. So I'm sure people are informed in terms of the history of Australian art. And I can suggest to you, like, if, if you don't know, you know, because there's some really great accounts of that history. But there was a sense in which there was the influence of the Antipodeans, for example, and, and relations between the different um, milieu of Melbourne and Sydney and the different practices in both places. Generally speaking, Melbourne has been seen to be the more radical place, uh, and there's a whole lot of, of kind of Sydney modernism and so on that has been, I think, probably a bit more neglected by that tradition because it's the Melbourne art historians, partly, I think, because Melbourne was the place that where art history as a discipline was really first strongly established. Um, so there's that... But this was a time when artists were not interested so much in history. They were more interested in theory, for one thing, but, but history usually meant uh, a fairly predictable range of practices and all sorts of post-object practices and so on were beginning to emerge at this point that were a challenge to what art was. And, um, and so in that milieu, all of these other kind of more conceptual-based artists began to come to the fore. Of course, art schools, there was... You know, there was East Sydney Tech in that period, but this is a period of the formation of um, Alexander Mackey College, Sydney College, opens into play in the mid-70s, um, early to mid-70s. So in that period, there really weren't the art schools, there weren't the magazines, there weren't very many galleries and so on. So, you know, that was the scene uh, that the Art Workers' Union began to activate successfully I think at the time it was it was very dynamic at the start yeah mm. completely and it sounds like because there was perhaps like a lack of these more established spaces that the guidelines and principles and ways of working with these people in a supportive way kind of there were no structures for that and yeah I, I really resonate I mean even to this day there's still an idea that um the Australian arts are really provincial and I mean, you mentioned the idea that of, of a cultural wasteland, and I, I agree with you, it is super problematic. I mean, especially considering the fact that art's been practiced here for over 60,000 years now by various First Nations people as well. So, yeah, it's always interesting to kind of challenge those ideas locally as well. Yeah. As, that's a yeah, very good point. That's a, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that's kind of interesting, I think, you know, Dylan, when you were speaking, you said that you were influenced by a New York group in a sense, mm. as, as, you know, and that's all, we always look elsewhere. We never look to the, to the local. And there's a sense in which every generation has to remake that history because we ignore it constantly. Mm. There's this constant sort of 
amnesia that happens in Australia, which is a little bit of a problem. And there was, a, you know, that was a, a kind of area of a special passion by a whole lot of the activists at this time too. Um, and, and so to say nothing of, as um, Justine, you rightly point out, that long tradition of Indigenous art and culture that, you know, we have also been coming to terms with in this period. And this is starting to emerge at this time as well. We're starting to see this in, in you know, some of those early exhibitions like Perspector. I'm just trying to think whether 81, Perspector in 1981, very important in terms of Indigenous art. But, yes, you know, like the, the place is just brimming over with culture, but we don't appreciate it enough. And we're always looking elsewhere. You know, I'd like to mm. hope that before I die, we won't be uh, doing that as much. But yes, I can definitely imagine. Um, I guess at the time of the formation of the Arts Workers Union, that a site that ignores its own lo local cultural presence would absolutely need a union to, in order to create guidelines and enforce those guidelines on how to how to relate to arts workers and how to, I guess, like yeah, put forward health and safety um, protocols as well as other kinds of copyright campaigns and things like that. Mm. You mentioned that the Arts Workers Union came together at first to advocate for the lack of local artists that were presented in the Biennale and from there they advocated for a variety of other kinds of different issues. Dylan, I was hoping you might be able to speak to what the main issues that arts workers, especially in AAWA, are focused on right now. What are, I guess, the most impacting issues in the current climate? So one of the aspects that we were attempting to address uh, was a casualized workforce, especially when it comes to uh, technicians. For, for us, that was a big one. Uh, another one was uh, disability access. But at this, especially at the moment, those two became the most discussed things that I've had in terms of just conversations. Because, you know, obviously in, a, in this time when almost everyone in the art sector has either lost their job or their job is on hibernation or anything like that, uh, technicians in particular often work freelance, job to job. And I know that there's quite a few freelance technicians out there who went from uh, having regular work at certain places, uh, being hired under their ABNs, and then that's sort of drying up with absolutely no safety net around that so they're sort of left out in the cold and relying on essentially job seeker type payments when there is potential for them to have a much greater safety net if they were if they had that security of longer term employment and one of the the things that we argue as a group is that uh, technicians this is purely largely an economic thing that we were that we were worried about but uh, one of the things that we were worried about was they're seeing uh, technicians and installers, art handlers as a financial burden to institutions. And we have collectively sort of come to understand that we actually nullify a lot of costs that would come from other sort of skilled tradespeople. Because, you know, for the same job that would end up costing five grand from, say, a carpenter would end up costing one grand from a technician. And, you know, we come not just with woodworking skills, but plastering skills and uh, AV install and all that knowledge. Yeah, and so essentially we, we, we were pushing really hard to not only lock in those jobs, but lock in those jobs with 
uh, wages that we saw were fair. One of the issues with that was, uh, like, as you said before, with, with the union, uh, with wages in particular, you can sort of lock in legally minimum wage for certain jobs and certain awards. And that was the thing that we began to talk about uh, before we sort of went on hiatus indefinitely. And that was the thing we weren't exactly sure on how to do because it felt to us like the NEAA was a union that was sort of too big to worry about this extremely niche group of workers. And we, I think at one point made an attempt to contact them and were sort of met on deaf ears. <laughs> but one of the, uh, the other issue that we have been talking a lot about, which I think has become extremely, you know, at the forefront is uh, accessibility in, in galleries, both in terms of uh, disability access, uh, language, different language sort of groups who are excluded from spaces and attempting to make these shows available for all because it's, you know, one thing to have a gallery space that's accessible for uh, English-speaking people, but it's another thing entirely if you have no context beyond that English-written piece of writing on the wall. So especially when it comes to digital shows at the moment, we have been, uh, I have been talking to a few people. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to talk about this, but uh, a few people have been uh, talking about the fact that often uh, artists with disabilities have been uh, forced to have these digital shows. And now that the rest of the world is in lockdown in a situation where they would normally be in lockdown as well, everyone is sort of forced to meet that perspective but doing so in a way that hasn't really acknowledged that that has actually been the case for a huge number of people for a huge amount of time. Again, the discussions that we're having about this sort of thing are just sort of this uh, beginning. I think because these discussions are largely driven through social media and not through physical interaction, it's a different dynamic to what you were discussing before about the arts workers union in, in the uh, 80s. Uh, our meetings were definitely more based on discussions had online and then when we saw each other in person the discussion would be I guess less uh, contentious. The way that I think of it is uh, with that sort of digital aspect of of discussion you have the ability to cite sources in real time, you have the ability to post articles, to uh, send pictures and you also have that trace that you can go back to what people have said and sort of understand beyond what is a passing comment I guess. And for Arts Workers Alliance, I think we all sort of came in with a, maybe not a clear view of what we were thinking about doing, but a very united view of what we were planning on doing. And we sort of didn't want to do it in a way that was inappropriate. And I think we attempted to uh, speak together in a way that doesn't sort of silence any voices that should be speaking in our place essentially trying to do what the make the best choices in that sort of situation but because we didn't have that physical meeting and that physical energy that it sounded like was happening in the 80s i think that that's where we lost a lot of momentum because we've had all in all maybe 10 meetings i'd say with attempting to be somewhat formal someone taking notes someone sort of keeping track of what people are saying 
and from there there on we uh after i took some time off that to finish uh some university stuff it sort of felt like it never really progressed beyond that so it's definitely something that i would love to reignite uh but i think it needs a collective sort of energy that we're lacking at the moment yeah that's great it was a, a super um like broad overview of the kinds of workings that you moved through with that group which mm. i think are really important and you first started off talking about how one main point that the AAWA has been advocating for is a casualization of arts workers' labor. Um, mm. And Helen, I think I had an earlier conversation with you about the beginnings of, of what we now know as the gig economy that you were kind of able to witness. And yeah, Helen, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about um, oh, yeah. what Helen had mentioned around the casualization. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now that's a really important thing because one of the things that was um, that is that exists now and we see it in the middle of this pandemic actually that the vulnerability of so many workers uh, because of this you know gig economy one of the problems that was a certain ambivalence on the part of most artists are both political and anti-political at the same time and, and so that means that a whole lot of the ways of working and ways of talking of say unions and of industrial organizations was something that was resisted by artists as a kind of restraint on their freedom in a certain sense. And, of course, artists are not like employees in that traditional legal sense. They are, in a sense, sole traders. So there's a kind of fundamental sense in which one of the things that's also born in this birth and expansion of contemporary art in Australia is the idea of that of kind of artistic freedom, of creativity, as this... I suppose, kind of ideal um, model of freedom for everyone and for every worker. And so there's a sense in which then we start getting to the kind of, you know, thoroughly neoliberal model of casualization and, you know, press, you know, sort of pressure on, on, uh, on conditions and so on. We've seen all of the erosion of those conditions. And so the situation that you're in now is, is kind of that we're all in now is really um, the result of a whole lot of kind of erosion of conditions over many years through many governments, uh, you know, within a general climate of a, of a particular hostility to those structures of organisation and unions that that have existed. And so then, and artists, I think, have, have also cooperated themselves in that in that challenging um, or in, in that sort of critique of of the model. The, the the model of the union. There's a lot of reasons for us to criticise that in a sense too. But I think that the union movement itself is looking to other forms. But certainly organisation is, is very important. You do have to have a collective movement uh, in order to, to sort of go forward because otherwise it falls on the shoulders of, you know, a small number of people who run out of energy, who burn out and so on. The kind of argument at the time had to do with sort of getting the structure in place. But there's certainly the, the biggest challenges that exist now is that widespread casualisation, that widespread kind of instability. And until, uh, I guess, we can begin to organise again, and because organisation is the only way of resisting that, mm. until we sort of get kind of more resistant structures kind of operational, then, you know, we're, we're still, we're all the time undercutting each other in a certain sense, which is exactly what kind of 
this model requires us to do, to be in competition constantly with each other. And that's the worst possible circumstance for any future for anyone. Yeah, completely. It's almost like, yeah, we're seen to be pitting against the same opportunities and resources rather than than working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it removes that sort of uh, incentive for collaboration that I guess has been there in the past, but it doesn't seem like there is a huge amount of that these days. So formally, there are lots of artists' collaborations and so on. Yeah, yeah. But like in terms of funding these days, you're fighting for funding as an individual rather than in a collaborative sense. More often than not, yeah, completely. Helen, I'm keen to hear about, I mean, you, you mentioned the structures that you were able to develop or the Arts Workers Union were able to develop these kinds of resistant structures. Um, I'm keen to hear a little bit about how the Arts Workers Union organised, how they came together, how they might have, I mean, did they work with some kinds of structure? Was it constant chaos? Yeah, I guess I'm keen to hear how these movements came together. Well, I, I guess these are a kind of mutual benefit um, uh, collaborations and networks and so on. There's, there's a fairly natural tendency to uh, come together in that sort of way, friendship circles and, and, and so on. But organisationally, there, there was democracy. The structures were democratic. Um, but they were also formal. Initially, they were, I think, fairly informal and fairly chaotic. Mm. And if you look at the minutes of the, and there's, you know, all sorts of fabulous documents that if you're interested in historical documents to read through, um, you know, records of meetings. And so there's a whole lot of people are all learning how to take minutes, you know, uh, people and, and yeah. how, to, how to adopt um, meeting structures and, all of those kinds of things, but there was also a lot of interest in uh, because because it's it's a, a group of artists or a, you know a, an organisation of artists, so that th there has to be creativity in terms of the let's say the the manifestations, and so there was for example at the 1982 Biennale a protest. The union members, and I think I actually participated in some of this, actually green printed these T-shirts and everyone wore, wore them and they kind of walked around through the crowd in these T-shirts and they became a, a kind of, you know, visual thing uh, and they mm. were carrying these kind of draft contracts and, and so on. And then, you know, like there are different demonstrations. There was a, there was a demonstration at, I think it was, in 1982, there was a women's art festival, and uh, and there was this iron inn, and so all of these women came onto the um, forecourt of the in front of the steps of the art gallery with ironing boards, and there was all of these kind of banners and so on. And then there was another demonstration. That, I think this was 1984, the 1984 um, either Perspective or Biennale opening. Again, this was an affirmative action committee, and it was kind of in. Um, they were in. They were in. They were gagged and uh, in all in black, and it was about sort of silencing and so on. And then you know, like the dances and parties. You know, there was a lot of fundraising um, because you know there were no benefactors or anything like that. There were no philanthropists who were throwing money in this direction. But certainly there was the, always the, the searching for more creative forms 
of um, manifesting the interests and, 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 and so on of artists. What was the Affirmative Action Committee about? Um, it was about, uh, initially, it, it fought very hard for quite a long time to get uh, equal numbers of men and women in, especially Perspecta, the Australian one. It didn't claim so much the, that for the Biennale because at that time, and we're talking about a climate in which the Biennale and these big survey shows were the sort of structure that kind of made a, a lot of difference. And there wasn't so much, you know, there wasn't so much international engagement, I suppose, like now the Venice Biennale becomes a big thing and so on. But in any case, there was um, a whole lot of energy and the most energetic of the artists and the most kind of, you know, and the hottest of the young artists at that time too, the women especially, people like, you know, sort of Susan Norrie and Narelle Jubilin and, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just pulling out names that immediately come to my mind. There's a whole lot of people that I should be mentioning here who have become really important since, you know. Um, they were part of this, you know, uh, at the level of organising or rather designing. Um, Ruth Wallet designed this beautiful, beautiful membership uh, card for the union, for example. It's a work of art to this day, you know. It would be great to see everyone carrying these cards again. But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, it's, yes, of course, we, we tried to organise interesting uh, demonstrations and that were performance art in themselves. But the fact is that there's an awful lot of really boring work that has to be done to make any mm. progress in these areas. And people's energy sort of runs out. You know, pe people are really bored by a lot of these things that have to be done to make an impact. And it, it's kind of interesting. Just two other things that to mention, actually, because this is a NAVA-hosted event. There's a sense in which NAVA itself is one of the legacies of the union because union members were very active at the beginning. And, um, and in a sense, uh, I think that that was one of the sort of forks in the road that was taken at a certain point to move towards an, art, an artist advocacy organisation uh, like NAVA as opposed to a union. So, there's, you know, there was always ambivalence about whether the union was the right way to go. You mentioned that there are a lot of demonstrations that were almost performance-like and people carrying around these membership cards that were designed by artists. And it kind of, I don't know, it feels like there's a parallel today in terms of, I know that um, there are a couple of meme accounts that advocate for arts workers in the Sydney art sector right now. And I guess people reposting their memes on their Instagram accounts or on their Twitters kind of feels like, kind of feels like a parallel to what you were speaking about with people wearing these shirts at these um, biennales and, and things like mm. that. And I guess, um, Dylan, you mentioned that a lot of the organising that has, has come from AAWA was over social media through Facebook groups. And yeah. I've seen a bit of action over um, meme accounts and I think it's really interesting how that becomes some kind of organic archive and how that might parallel to the archive that you built up, Helen. Um, I think it was in maybe 20 years ago now, that documented all of the union movements around the arts. Have you thought of these social media accounts as almost like an archive, Dylan? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that was really interesting about the research that I was doing at the time of my master's was uh, looking at Art Handler magazine, which was a 
publication that sort of started as a as a theoretical I guess discussion about uh, hierarchies in gallery sort of spaces and the idea of art as a um, commercial object they stopped publishing their their theoretical sort of stuff and they completely shifted over into an Instagram account that posted pretty much exclusively uh, memes that were uh, I guess politically aggressive and politically just uh, essentially addressing the conditions under which we work and this is something that I referenced heavily in the in my in my research just sort of looking at the way that these days you don't necessarily have to be in a bigger large organization to make sort of larger statements you like you don't have to have uh, an organizer organization together to come up with a statement you can just post it on your instagram account and that can potentially be reposted if it's relevant and spread in a way that you couldn't do say back in even like the late 90s beyond say you know your individual friend group because there is that sort of individual power in mass media uh, or not mass media but like individual power in social media you are less bound to being within a group and so i think individual action became a has become a huge thing so um i know of i'm thinking off the top of my head just in terms of people and accounts like there are so many that address very very specifically sydney's the the sydney moment in art like looking at i guess often it's often it's not necessarily serious criti criticism serious critique but it um it does so in a way that i think is specific enough to be historically important and whether or not that is formally archived is one thing but it is definitely organically just all there and having the ability to go back and look at that i think is really important because one of the things that i struggled with uh with uh arts workers alliance was finding any information about the arts workers union i um ended up contacting uh nava who uh had a little bit of information they sent me through i think it was like 10 or 12 posters and or leaflets and uh from that i sort of figured out what they were doing in that uh, in the in the 80s and 90s but uh oh 80s i guess yeah and they um it was really striking to see that a lot of what they were attempting to get done was stuff that was still trying to happen even even through uh like affirmative action sort of groups uh i think the focus has shifted like from affirmative action necessarily in in as many words but more into uh inclusion diversity which again is now uh those are phrases that seem to be not necessarily uh accepted i guess it's it's and being able to see that sort of progression from like you know affirmative action groups to i guess even just like anonymous meme accounts on instagram is kind of interesting yeah completely and i think they still do bring to the fore the fore a lot of um vulnerability of these kinds of workers absolutely so it's interesting yeah. to make these kinds of parallels dylan you mentioned that when you look through these archives that nava presented that mm. kind of documented the work of the arts workers union that you came across a lot of cyclical issues we've spoken a little bit about 
um, work health and safety problems, as well as those around mm. copyright and a lack of, um, I guess, visibility of local artists that the Arts Workers Union were working through. But could you identify maybe a couple more pressing cyclical issues? And maybe, yeah, it would be interesting to hear both of your thoughts on these cyclical issues that it seems like the, the sector has been moving through for decades now. Yeah, one of the one of the big ones that I think that Navra has even attempted to address is uh, even just securing pay for artwork. There was a whole uh, whole poster. I can't remember what year it was from, but it was essentially dedicated to that the idea of literally just paying artists for their work. Which and and uh, I think that one actually comes up so often. But like I guess now pay in our gig economy is ex like there's exposure there's you know whatever but i think one of the things is having that fair wage and not just like a wage as a token is the important thing and also in terms of uh arts working fields i think one that i saw was attempting to get more women as technicians especially in the 80s that was uh, another poster it was essentially, there was a, I guess, a huge gender divide back then in terms of arts admin and, and uh, arts technician work. I think that's broken down a little, but obviously, you know, you look at the teams that uh, install larger shows, they're often 90 to 100% male. And yeah, there's, there's very little thought beyond get the job done around that. And it doesn't seem like there's much room for growth in terms of getting women involved in that sort of work so those are those are two that I, I can think of just off the top of my head yeah Helen I'd be interested to hear what um, issues you might you feel might still be apparent that I guess you were really advocating for in the days of the Arts Workers Union well I think pretty much all of the issues that we were concerned with nothing has been secured um, it's it's a constant mm. struggle. You have to constantly fight to avoid er erosion. The question, I mean, Dylan, you mentioned the question of payment. You know, there are so many situations in which artists are required to, you know, donate their work, really, and mm. so much of the subsidy or so much of the, you know, so much work is really subsidised by artists in terms of, you know, even if you get, let's say you get an Australia Council grant, if you're lucky enough, you know, you, you might get, one like I don't know once in a lifetime in my case but it turns out that when it it's the actual amount of those grants is really not enough to do a big scale production you know like it, it and so you end up you you might have to comply you know included an artist fee in the thing but you end up not using that you end up kind of somehow spending that on the production itself that's the mm. normal way that that we operate. And yeah. that's not at all a satisfactory situation because mm. the budget, the amounts, I suppose the amounts of the, of the grants are not large enough really for the sorts of things that people want to do. So all the time they're reliant themselves, artists themselves then have to squeeze other people and so on. There's a whole, it's a, it's a mm. whole kind of structure of, of exploitation. Um, and, and in a sense, you learn to be exploitative in, in a certain way. I don't think that I have learned that yet. But, <laughs> you know, I mentioned that the Biennales were the, the thing that structured so much of the thinking at the time. 
now I think the art fair is something that has displaced that kind of structure. And what that means is, is that the whole thing has become even more privatised in that it, it's now globally the individual collectors and so-called philanthropists. The biggest philanthropists in the art world are the artists and they've kept the show on the road all of this time because, you know, like, but all of the energy and all of the publicity and credit goes to philanthropists, so-called philanthropists. And they're often people who don't give very much of their own money, in fact, but, uh, but it becomes kind of social, a form of social capital. And, and that's, you know, like an issue, I think, with, with so much of it. I mean, I, you know, we live in a particular world that, that makes demands of that kind now. But the fact is that artists are the, artists are the biggest philanthropists in the art world and they uh, probably always have been. And they don't get the credit for it. And, you know, like, for example, so many artists whose works are in national collections, uh, you know, national and state gallery collections are there because the artists have donated, not because mm. they've been purchased. And one of the things that's kind of interesting, you know, like, for example, there was just recently the National Gallery of Australia paid, you know, $5 million or something for a, an American artist's work. And that probably sucked out all the money to buy any Australian work for mm. who knows how long, you know, stuff like that. You know, it's, it's impossible to find out how much work is purchased by state and national galleries, for example. So much of what is purchased is also purchased by particular kind of groupings that are designed to, to um, you know, uh, are put together to make the purchase rather than, you know, funds because the galleries themselves don't have the funds to do it so it, it's it's a kind of you know we are living in this kind of entirely voluntarist um, art world in fact it makes no economic sense at all to be an artist actually completely agree super interesting so i mean that you say that nothing has been secured and we still are working through the very same issues that were really apparent back in the late 70s and the 80s were there any rights or any wins that the Arts Workers Union were able to celebrate in the time? Yes. Well, I think that, uh, I think, you know, that for a start, they managed to get acceptance of a contract in 1984. They produced uh, really important kind of statements of principles and guidelines in relation to health and safety, in relation to um, affirmative action, in relation to copyright and ethics. All of those things uh, were achieved. The thing is that with achievement, you know, everything is kind of tiny and you just have to keep going. You can't stop. You can't kind of rest on your laurels. And you mm. have to have structures that can bring in uh, another generation to, to continue the work because it, it's kind of ongoing. You know, and I'm, I'm old, you know, and we, we used to say never trust anyone over 30. And I think it's a good principle. And... Could stick with it, you know. but 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 we are dealing with a, a sort of ongoing process and the necessity to keep going and to keep fighting and to keep finding ways in which uh, you can sort of keep the energy going somehow. Because it will there'll be people who want to fight, and you just have to connect with them because you know across generations 
much, you know, increasing of intersectionality in all sorts of ways and all of those other kind of new access areas that, that, that Dylan's mentioned, disability. Um, I mean, we did start, we did kind of, the, the union did uh, important forums on multiculturalism in the uh, early 80s and, and there's been kind of some moves there. There's been, you know, this, but there's still, the, it's still a, a kind of like white Anglo art world on the whole. Yeah, completely. You totally. spoke to this a little bit earlier before, Dylan, I mean, about how conversations around diversity and inclusivity are now just these phrases that have been co-opted and performed and nothing further than that's kind of really been achieved. So it's super interesting to know that these conversations were being had around the times of the Arts Workers Union. And let's uh, also remember class as a, as a yes. key, you know, central mm -hmm. thing that is important, social class. Mm notwithstanding Margaret Thatcher's idea that there's no such thing as society, mm. which we've now seen most recently, the, the complete fallacy of such an argument. Yeah, completely. That's in Australia, fair. because one of the things that's really remarkable about the situation that so far we're in, and let's hope it continues, is that we have done this through collective action. Yeah, it definitely feels It's the like most that. collective, most significant, most successful collective action that we have performed in recent times. Yeah, totally. That's actually just reminding me of one of the things that was coming out of uh, the US in terms of arts workers unions, because at the moment their arts workers unions have sort of reignited and become this extremely big energetic thing is they've, uh, they've got the, I think it's an, uh, uh, an art technicians emergency fund that they've set up and it has, like a huge amount of, of donated funding that they've ended up with. And I think there's potential with these groups to sort of build stuff like that and less, I guess, political and more sort of like uh, cooperative care of one another. And I think that's a pretty cool way of structuring these sort of organizations. But at the same time, it does require, as you said, a I guess a handing off, handing off of the torch generationally, which I guess requires some level of structure and formality. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's looking like we're almost reaching time, but before we head off, Helen, I'd love to hear about um, the shelf structure of the NAAA that you mentioned a little earlier when we first began speaking. Well, look, I don't know, you know, as far, all I know is in 1994, on a given date, February, the, the union amalgamated, the Art Workers Union, which itself was a former structure registered in 1989, it amalgamated with MEAA. And so what I don't know, because I haven't researched this, you know, is what is the current status of that particular kind of, you know, what is the current status of that? Dylan, you've in fact had experience of going there and kind of finding you didn't get very far. I, th I think that, you know, sort of made there, there's work to be done in establishing what is there. But for the, for the MEAA to, to consider this group of workers to be worth their while, you know, maybe some organisation has to happen within that group to say that it's not a small group, it's actually a large group if you were to kind of figure out how many mm. you know, 
people there are nationally, let's say, it's not an insignificant group. But for the for any of this to be worth the while, the while of the MEAA, we have to ourselves be organised. Uh, we have to be. We have to join. We'd have yep. to be members. All of that, you know, because there weren't enough people fell off. So that, mm. that means that there has to be recruiting and that all of those kind of like uh, all of those sorts of activities have to be done to sort of re kind of energise the membership. Mm. To, to establish who the membership is, you know, how to contact them, how to mobilise them, how to get them to join. Um, mm. and, and that's especially hard in the world in which we've had the sort of eroding of the power of unions and discrediting of them in all sorts of ways. But also in the very world that you mentioned of individual actions on social media, you know, that structure itself is is kind of, you know, counter to the or to to the idea of people coming together, and we're now, you know, in a world in which it's harder to come together in mm. actual, you know, in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Helen. It's super interesting and super important to make those kinds of parallels and to, I mean, it, it's interesting that you reached out to this organisation and that fell on deaf ears. And I mean, yeah, it feels like there was a lot of work that was done. And I know that Helen, you've worked on a project that documented all of that onto a CD-ROM kind of format. Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yes, yes, I'm really happy to. Um, it was, um, the reason that it was a CD-ROM is that it seemed to be, because I'd done this kind of quite detailed um, timeline and I wanted it to be interactive because, because architecturally it's very hard to do a timeline which has got all these references without being unwieldy and it is unwieldy. Mm. So I had kind of footnotes, so I've got this kind of academic thing of footnotes, but there were also links, hot links within that to an image, a, a document, um, an interview, or all of these different things. And, um, and so the CD-ROM was the structure. But the problem with the CD-ROM as a structure is that, you know, we, we made it, it, it happened, it's a beautiful thing, but then operating systems change and it's no longer operational. So so that was a thing. But I think that probably it, we might be at a point where uh, it would be lovely to kind of hand it on or to sort of work with others to turn it into either a, a kind of printed form or else an mm. online form, more to the point perhaps, but something that, that, that uh, was more accessible. Certainly I'm, I, I would like to be able to hand all of that material on yeah so that um, timeline documents the the actions of the arts workers unions as well yes. as other yeah. um, unions that were relative to the arts yeah. sector over the years yeah and to get what, you know like for it to for there to be a structure that that kind of others could add to because you know you when you do a timeline you can't there's a question of what should be on the timeline what is significant mm. how do you structure those things all of these historiographical questions arise and aesthetic questions too of kind of form. The CD-ROM was something that at that point around 2000, which is when it, it was published, that was something that seemed to be a possibility. But, and the structure was, you know, quite nice in many ways, but, and people really liked it when they could access mm. it, but, but it's sort of locked into this kind of disc that, 
you can break into, and uh, it was broken into, breaking in is the wrong word, but it was made accessible for the, um, there was an exhibition at Ian Potter Gallery in Melbourne in 2017 called State of the Union. And that looked at a whole lot of cultural production in unions. Um, Mm. It was quite interesting, but yes, it's so it's it, it's kind of the material is all there, and I've got boxes of original documents as well. I'm not sure where all the rest of the original documents are. Either they went to the MEAA as well, or they're in the state library. But these are questions that I think it's now time to get to because this is kind of your history. Absolutely. And what were the dates that this timeline outlined? It was um, was it from 1978 when the Arts Workers Union began to the early 90s when it then kind of moved well, into other organisations? Well, the timeline was 79 to 89, but in fact to 1994. So that's a 15-year period. But in fact, I also documented the previous, I started in 1956, actually. So there was a that previous 20 a sense of the kind of structure of the Australian art world at that time. That was also part of it, and that was more sketchy. And there's so much good art historical material on that period, but but the, the period from '79 certainly that artist organisations structure that's not so well known. And, and uh, but you know, like if you think of almost every important artistic organisation in Australia has been well documented by people who were involved with it or whatever, but all of that material is fragmentary. I've got quite a lot of it that I brought together um, for the, you know, in working on this and uh, and there's been lots more since. Um, so the stuff is always there. We are so often so, more, so much more inclined to look to overseas examples rather than to... To, to make the harder work that's required usually to, you know, track down all of this ephemeral material. You have to be obsessive to find out, you know, the local story. But you can just browse in a bookshop or Google to find out mm. what's happening in the rest of the world. That sounds like you've made the job easier by kind of compiling this timeline, which is an incredible, it sounds like a great resource and it would be interesting to bridge histories over over the generations of these kinds of movements and ways of advocating for arts workers. Um, So it feels like this could definitely lead on to more conversations. Looks like we're almost time to wrap up, but were there any questions that you had that you wanted to speak through before we, we finish up our first chat? This is more of a, this is more of a practical question for you, Helen. What was the most enticing thing for people, for getting people to come to meetings? Well, you know, at that time, look, meetings are boring. It's, there's no way you can wrap them. Um, but but it, there was a particular energy at the time. There was a particular energetics that was operational. And it's kind of, you know, it's a question of how you, what is it? What is it that grabs people? How do you, how do, you mm. do these things? And, uh, of course... I, I wouldn't go to anything anymore because, you know, I'm too old. But, you know, youth, youth is, youth has boundless energy. So there are kind of, it's a question of what is it that sort of is the thing that there's no formula for it. It's just, you know, what, what, it's mm. not just what's hot, you know, yep. that's part of it. 
but like what is the particular kind of like energetics of this moment and what is the particular activity that is that people are going for now there's a sense in which like the internet has probably distorted that and it and mm. certainly has made it not as national as it once was it's now international and so we automatically go somewhere else but it, that, that was a moment that was just a moment when the local mattered so the challenge is for every generation in australia to figure out where is the life here you know mm. how is it expressing itself in a way that makes us feel alive and meaningful and Cool. Yeah, completely. I also, yeah. I also think it's a, it might be a matter of making these issues, I guess, at the forefront of people's minds, making people know that I, I can only speak from experience. I mean, before I knew about the workings of these kinds of unions, um, I didn't necessarily know that I was deserving or worthy of more rights. I kind of, I just wasn't aware of, of my rights. I didn't know that I might have been experiencing labor abuse or something like this. I think raising awareness about exploitation and the vulnerability of workers is, is might just be one step of bringing people to action, just letting people know that we can advocate for more and we are worthy and deserving of more. And I think a lot of infographics online have been really helpful in bridging data just so that we can visualize and understand that there actually is a need for us to come together. Yeah, absolutely. Coming together is about yeah, raising more awareness, letting people know that we are worthy and deserving of more and we can absolutely advocate for more. And it's yeah, even but, harder now than it was. But I think I think having these kinds of conversations feels like a tiny step closer. And it's been really beautiful to bridge these conversations over over the years with you both. And it feels like the start of, of, a, of a whole suite of conversations. But yeah, I think this is a, a great first step towards... I guess, more advocacy and more awareness of these kinds of ways of working. Absolutely. Definitely. It's so great that these kinds of interests are still going. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's great. Awesome. Thank you both so much for your time this evening. Thank um, you. We'll keep the conversation going. And I hope, yeah, I hope everyone listening is, is safe and well and I'm sending solidarity to everyone who's feeling the impacts of these times. I mean, we all are, but I want to also send my solidarity to those who are feeling the depths of these impacts in this current climate. Um, and I hope we can have more of these conversations soon. Head to our website, visualarts.net.au, for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.